Let's read the word of the Lord together, or read along with me as I'm reading. John 15, 4 to 11. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. His word is good. Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor of our church. Uh, we're in a new series that we are beginning today. So if today is a first day of visitation at Trinity or maybe the first time at church in a long time, welcome to you. We realize that coming into new spaces with new people can feel a bit unsettling, uh, but we're glad that you're here and we think that God is going to meet with you as we go into this part of our service. So today we're going to be looking at John 15, a couple of verses as we're read. The series is entitled Abide in My Love. This will last five weeks. We're going to be looking at some of the big metaphors and pictures within this beautiful uh, section of scripture over five weeks. And then we're going to be at Advent already. Can you believe that? Christmas? Who's ready for Christmas? Okay, a lot of people ready for Christmas. I was in uh, Coles the other day. They had Christmas music on pre Halloween. What's going on? I was kind of dancing, right? Kind of ready. It's a no-no, I know. Got to wait a few more weeks. But abide in my love. Looking at dominant images that John is laying out for us as we understand this very impactful, life-shaping part of Scripture. And today we're going to be looking at the image of home, all right? In John 10.10, which is, of course, a couple of chapters before John 15, which is where we're going to be spending these five weeks. But in John 10.10, Jesus makes a famous statement to his disciples. You may be familiar with it. He says, I have come, or I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I love that statement. The message paraphrase puts it like this. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life, than they ever dreamed of. See, like that's Jesus's heart for you if you follow him. We have all got dreams about the life that we want to live. And Jesus is saying, if you walk with me, I will always do you one better. That's what he's saying. But as you well know, secular culture makes the same promise that Jesus makes, doesn't it? There's a pathway into the promised land of fullness laid out today that looks and sounds like eat, drink, and be merry. Consume experiences, 
Create your own meaning. Care for yourself above anything and anyone. Even Burger, Burger King has gotten in on the individualism train. What do they have? Their, their new little ditty says like, BK, have it your way. You rule, right? There you go. Some of you have been paying close attention, like my family, right? We kind of sing it along, and then I'm like, man, they're trying to get me to live my best life now through the burger, all right? Everybody is in on this right now. Freedom to choose your own path. Untethering from tradition, complete autonomy, and independence as long as nobody else is harmed. What are the results of that? We are deeply unsettled. And we are more worried than we've ever been, anxious, angry, divided. The secular pathway into the fullness of life is not working. All hype, no lasting substance. But Jesus offers something different and distinct, and he calls it the way of abiding. Okay? This is his offer. I have come that they may have fullness of life. How's that going to work, Jesus? You got to abide with me. This is what these five weeks are going to be about. A way of life centered on the person and the presence of God in Jesus Christ. Write this down. Abiding is a set of choices, a set of choices and habits that orient us in the world of God. Okay? I have to be oriented into his World. I'm going to introduce this theme to you today. We move in, we abide, we set up shop, we stick around, we stay a while, we come home. And this is the fuel of Christianity. This is the fuel of this way of life with Jesus. And we do everything that we can to remain. And you're going to have to work hard to remain. That's what Jesus is saying. There's fullness offered. Let's go together. Abiding is the beautiful option that he's laying out. How do I do it? What's it look like? What's it feel like? We're going to unpack part of that today. So under three headings. Number one, we're going to look at the grace of abiding. Number two, we're going to look at the effort of abiding. And number three, we're going to look at the joy of abiding. All right? So the grace, the effort, and the joy of abiding. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 is where we'll spend most of our time. Verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. All right. There are many things that make Christianity wonderfully unique. But one of them, if not the key differentiator between every other religion and philosophy and worldview and Christianity, is the concept of grace, okay? Grace is the thing that is going to make Christianity stand out, shine, and be distinct and different. Let me give you a quick story to illustrate this. One of my favorite experiences in the city of San Francisco, been there many times, had lots of weird experiences, but one of the best experiences in San Francisco was visiting uh, Twitter headquarters, which is now X headquarters, all right? Okay, not X Twitter, but Twitter has become X. So visiting 
Twitter headquarters. A friend of mine had gotten absorbed. His company uh, had gotten bought out, and so he was working for Twitter. He invited me for lunch. And one of the things that big tech does is they want your time, they want your energy, they want your soul, and they know the way to get your soul is through free food. And so many of you work for big tech, and you understand that they have started to offer incredibly tasty free lunches. He said, you want to come to free lunch at Twitter? I said, I'm on my way. Okay. It was beautifully laid out. The cafeteria was amazing. Multiple floors, multiple spaces. The food was high quality. They want to keep you there, of course. You think you're getting something free, but they are getting a lot out of you by keeping you close to the office. Lunch was one thing, but my favorite part was the convenience store inside of Twitter with no price tags and no clerk. Like every 13-year-old boy's dream. And I evidently have the soul of a 13-year-old boy. Like it was my favorite thing about visiting Twitter. I'm like, man, I love seeing you. Lunch was awesome. The convenience store. That's where it's at. We're walking around and I assumed that we had to pay for everything, but there was nowhere to check out. He said, yeah, man, all of this is on the house, especially if you're not an employee, right? As a visitor and a guest, I was also allowed to go in and enjoy And this is really such a concrete illustration of Isaiah 55, 1, where the Lord provides an invitation into the redemptive future that he is securing for his people. That verse says this, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Who knew Twitter could be like an embodied experience of grace? Grace introduces a new and foreign element into the storyline of how we relate to God. Most versions of enlightenment, call it what you want, enlightenment or religion say that the path to God demands your best, that to be accepted, you've got to keep the rules. One says that you need to bring your spiritual wallet or your spiritual purse in order to make a moral payment. And the other version, the grace-filled Christian version, says someone has already picked up the tab and there is no need to Venmo. That's Christianity. That's different. Two of the more prominent doctrines that are worked out within the pages of the New Testament are what theologians call justification and sanctification. And both are critical to abiding in Christ. Both, as you're going to see in a moment, both of these ideas, doctrines, realities, I'm going to unpack them for you, are fueled by grace. But to understand where each fits in the storyline of walking with Jesus and abiding with Jesus is critical to this thing that Jesus calls the fullness of life. He goes, I've come that they may have fullness. All right, Jesus, show me. He wants to show you. John 3.16, the first doctrine, justification. John 3.16, easy place to begin, famously says, for God so loved the world that whoever not not whoever, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God the Father sent the son so that whoever believes in him might have this eternal reversal take place in their life. If you believe all of your sin has been paid for, all of your sin has been redeemed, there is something awaiting for you that you do not deserve because Jesus has taken what only you deserve. This is this incredible reversal called justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21, sit in it for a moment. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. Some of you are saying, I'm just trying to live the righteous life. What he's saying is I got a gift for you in Jesus Christ. You become the righteousness of God. We're going to keep working that out. How does that work? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Key differentiator, something that makes Christianity very unique and very distinct. This is justification. I have been made right with God by the action and the sacrifice of another. He's got a name. His name is Jesus. But does doctrine make a difference in the way in which you actually live? Let's ask that question. There's a Croatian theologian. His name is Miroslav Volf. Some of you have read things by him. He says this. He says, imagine that you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color and you have no hope that any of this will change. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens and in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievements. You are a failure and you know that you will continue to be a failure because there is no way for you to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered and your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count even more that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve, even that you are loved a tad bit more than those whose efforts have been crowned with success. And let's pick up together here. Imagine now this gospel not simply proclaimed, but embodied in a community that has emerged not as a result of works, Justified by sheer grace, it seeks to justify by grace those who are made unjust by society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine furthermore, this community determined to infuse the wider culture along with its political and economic institutions with the message that it seeks to embody and proclaim. This is justification by grace, proclaimed and practiced. A dead doctrine? Hardly. Amen, right? Grace erodes the power structures of the world that run on the fuel of high-octane meritocracy. Where only the high achievers get respect and power, where only the powerful are seen as valuable. One writer put it like this, justification means that in God's eyes, we are given Jesus's perfect record. We are treated as if we had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. We are given the love that Jesus deserved. We have the same access to the Father that Jesus did. The good news is that all of this comes not from us doing anything, but simply by what? Faith. Faith. Look, to know that I am seen and accepted when I start a new job or go to the first day of school, first day in securities, to know who God is, this background reality in my life, changes what I need from other people, but also the messages that I believe about myself. 
When you have a rather public failure, when a relationship falls apart, when the life that you've dreamed of is not panning out, to have this background reality, background doctrine, background belief say that when you step into any human sphere, you are seen, you are honored, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are purchased, you are known, you belong. No matter where you go today, this is the background reality of your faith. You know what Jesus is saying? Abide there. That's what he's saying. Abide in my love. There are so many things that set Christianity and Jesus apart. I have given you just a taste. He goes, set up shop there. Remain there. Abide there. I have already come and made my home with you. That's verse four. I'm already abiding with you. Will you abide with me? That's his question. Abide there. Make that your home. Verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Justification tells us that we are loved by Christ just as much as he is loved by the Father. How much is Jesus Loved by his father? Like, can you quantify that? What number would you put on that? How would you describe the father's love for his perfect son? And the scriptures tell us that this is how you are loved. Some of you say, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. I don't experience it. I don't know it. I don't know love like this. You know what Jesus's answer is to you? Come with me. Let's abide. And it's free. Okay, it's grace-filled. That's where we start. But there's going to be some effort put in. So the effort of abiding, part two. The grace of abiding and the effort of it. I'm going to be very specific with words here if I can. Abiding is a verb, meaning it demands action. It takes discipline. It's going to take some effort justification is something that God has proclaimed in the person of Jesus Christ over your life. But to remain in justification, not that you can lose it, but to experience it, like to put it on, as Paul says. Paul says in other places in his epistles to the young churches, he goes, put it on. It's another way of saying, abide in my love. Like he's done it, rest in it. But how? How do we do that? To remain in that kind of love takes discipline and focus and decision. And it takes effort. And this is a second doctrine that the New Testament expands throughout the pages of its letters. Sanctification. Justification is one thing. Sanctification is another. Both are beautiful in this part of the story, but how we order them and how we understand them matters immensely. In fact, the Westminster Catechism references justification as an act of God's free grace, and it outlines sanctification as a work of God's free grace. Why does one called an act? Why is one called a work? Well, one is an action of God upon your life in the person of Jesus. You, when you believe, are declared righteous that moment. It is acted upon you. It's over. It's done. You're justified forever. And then he goes, you know what I want you to do? I want you to become like my son. And I'm going to take that same grace 
that saved you. And I'm going to massage it into your heart through the community, through the Holy Spirit. And it's going to progressively make you look more like my son. Same grace that saved you is the grace that propels you forward. And where Christians seem to get into trouble is when we base our justification on our sanctification. Okay, let me explain that to you if that's confusing. When we evaluate God's love for us based on what we have done for him, Christianity gets completely derailed and abiding for you Being with Jesus becomes a drain. It becomes drudgery. It becomes something that lacks joy and meaning and purpose. And you are prone to dissociate, to disentangle from the church and to walk away. This is what happens when Christians conflate the two and assume that God loves me, that he has pronounced something upon my life because I walk with him, because I go to Trinity, because I'm moderately kind, because I give money away, because I do things for him. Listen, it can be conscious or subconscious. It does not matter. It just becomes the motivating fuel in your life. You think that you're doing things for God, but really you're doing things for yourself. I have based my justification, God's love for me, on my sanctification. And that's earning. And that's anti-gospel. And it undermines the good news. But abiding is different. And it's fueled by grace-filled effort. Let me show you a few things here. John Mark Comer comments that as much as Christianity is something to believe, it is also something that we do. Would you say that about your faith if you are a Christian in the room today? That you would say, of course, I assent to certain things, but is there something required of me? Is there a way of life? Is there a way of engagement? Is there a morality to my faith? Is it something that I do? In Jesus' most famous sermon, his Sermon on the Mount, both at the beginning in Matthew 5.19 and at the end of that sermon, Matthew 7.24, Jesus says to the people who are listening, his followers, his disciples, you know what he says? Put it into practice. He goes, blessed are you if you do what I just told you to do. Blessed will be your life if you take what you have heard and it becomes part of the fabric of your being and you begin to live this way. James, he says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, it's what? It's dead. My justification has to drive a way of life in the world that brings honor to Jesus and makes me experience John 10, 10. Man, there is some fullness here because I'm abiding there. Scotty Smith, one of my favorite guys, he writes, we are all abiders, but we don't always choose to abide in God's love. It's so much easier to abide in busyness, choosing lesser things over eternal goodness, or we abide in bitterness, rehearsing how people fail us more than we savor your love. We could always choose to abide in our fears, fear of people, fear of missing out, fear of dying, fear of getting old, to name a few. Or we can forever dwell in and on things that make us angry, people who don't get us, or regrets and resentments we just can't or really won't let go of. Here's what he's saying. Abiding is not an option. It's already happening. 
You are already dwelling somewhere. You're already dwelling on some experience or some desire or some hope or some love or some relationship. It is driving the habits and the passions of your life. Jesus is saying the only question that you have left to answer is where and why and why will I dwell? Where am I going? Why is it animating me? What's it going to look like right, to abide with Jesus? Justin Early, I love this quote. He says, we all have a set of communal habits we are defaulting to, but most of our families are defaulting to the American style of habits, the American, what we would call rule of life. By not choosing our habits carefully, we are falling back onto rhythms that are forming us in all the usual patterns of unceasing screen time, unending busyness, unrivaled consumerism, unrelenting loneliness, unmitigated addictions, and unparalleled distractions. Does the church look different at all from greater society? Are we anti-technology? In no way, right? Are we anti-power? No. Are we anti-accumulation or money? No. But we treat those things as different. St. Augustine talks about the ordering of the human heart, and we say what must be prioritized first is abiding. It's him. I'm with him. He's first and it changes how I relate to the world. I'm just going to give you this snippet. You may already know this. This is why we have set up what's called a rule of life for our church. It's a set of communal grace-filled habits that bring you into the presence of Jesus. That's the whole point Over the next four or five weeks, I'm going to unpack part of that. Why do we call it rule? Are you being legalistic? Do I have to do all of those practices to be a Christian? No. There are so many things that help me date my wife. Do I do them all the time? Yes. No, I don't. Okay. I wish I did. (laughs) But you do things to cultivate presence, right? To be in their life to see it grow and to see it change. And we're going to talk through this. Some people say rule of life, isn't that works righteousness? Isn't it legalistic? And the clear answer is a resounding no. It's grace-fueled effort to abide with Jesus. Imagine someone gets married, decides never to invest in their spouse because they have already recited the vow. No investment. You know I love you. We said it on the day that we got married, but really from here on out, like you're kind of just going to live separate lives. Nobody would say that the decision to abide in the presence of your husband or your wife is legalistic and narrow and self-righteous. You would say, of course, it's going to take effort for you to have a dynamic relationship with your spouse. Why does it take effort to have a relationship with Jesus? Because I just said it, The core of Christianity is what? A relationship. I want to know him. I want him to know me. And to do that, just like for us to be friends, you've got to put in the effort, not to earn, but to be in his presence, right? I think what Jesus is inviting us into is the recovery of grace-saturated effort. Some people will call it holiness of life. Some people will call it the pursuit of righteous character. Some might even call it consecration. And this is the prophet Isaiah saying, here am I, use me, right? Send me. I want to know you. 
I've been around you. Jesus, what do you have for me? Man, I've read John 10, 10. You said fullness. I'll take it. Show me what it looks like to step into that fullness. That's what this whole thing is about. Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying, discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want most. And I bet most of us, if we were pressed, we would say one of the things we want most is a sense of home, a sense of longing, a sense of belonging, longings met. And even the greatest homes are but shadows and appetizers and signposts of the home that God has created for us. One writer, Julian Barnes, said, we live with the vicious awareness that this is a rented world. This is a rented world. Home is very difficult to find. And so in the gospel, home comes and finds you. You're made for God. Your heart is made to beat in tune with his. And God says, you'll never find home. So home is coming for you. And Jesus says, abide there, right? Abide with me. Are there areas of your life where you feel exhausted? What comes to mind for you? Maybe you say physically I'm doing okay, man, but emotionally there is this part of my life that is so taxing. You know what Jesus would say to you? I see you. Come and abide with me. Or come and rest with me. Stay a while. I've made my home with you. Will you work hard to stay with me? One of the most beautiful verses that captures this is Revelation 3.20, most likely familiar to some of you, where Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So often this is used in evangelism. You know that Jesus is addressing the church? He's speaking to his own people. He's speaking to disciples. The church in Laodicea, Revelation 3. He says, I'm knocking on your door. I want to come in and eat with you. I want to have fellowship with you. I want to abide. Will you open the door? And we want to open that door together. Lastly and quickly, grace of abiding, the effort of abiding and the joy of abiding. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, if you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So often we think of our relationship with Jesus Christ as like a killjoy thing. Jesus is saying, I'm not killjoy, I'm full joy. That's who I am. He is the most joyful, happy, settled, healthy human being who has ever walked on our planet. He goes, come into my presence and I'm gonna start to fill your heart with that. Closing illustration to bring us into this joy. Think about this. Throughout the New Testament, especially when we get to Revelation, which we just read from, Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom and we are the bride, okay? So what he's doing here is he's inviting us to come and abide. He's inviting us to come and make our homes with him, right? To be with him forever. This means that what he's describing is the pre-wedding 
engagement, I can't wait to live with my spouse forever type of joy. What he's saying is like, if heaven is eternity, if heaven is abiding with Jesus forever, then you get to abide with him right now in this pre-engagement, in this engagement joy. If you've been married, if you've been engaged, you know that this is an incredible season of joy. You cannot wait to pledge your love to the person whom you have asked to marry you. You are just waiting for the wedding day. Tremendous joy, tremendous expectation. Yes, we have a life ahead of us, but there's joy now. That's what Jesus is saying. It's that kind of joy. Do you want that? He goes, I want to give it to you. I died to give it to you. Come and abide with me, with your friends, and see what he does. Yeah, that's where we're going. That's the invitation. Let's pray. Jesus, we are are floored by what you say. Could it be true? Could it be true that you love us so much that you want to be with us? Some people in the room are saying, he doesn't want to be with me. He doesn't want to be with me. Nobody should want to be with me. Friend, hear again the gospel. That all of your sin is taken away. That somebody has paid the debt for your life. That you have a clean slate. And you are not loved because you are good, because you are moral, because you are kind. You are loved because of faith in Jesus. Could it be that you want us to have fullness of joy? Lord, we have looked all over the place for fullness of joy. So many paths, so many whispers, so many opportunities to walk somewhere and to find out, will this give me joy? Will she give me joy? Will he give me joy? Will that fill my life up to overflowing? And those are supposed to be signposts on the journey with Jesus. Of course, we get joy from friends and family and accomplishment. But Jesus is the source. Jesus, teach us to abide. We need to relearn. We need to know. There are basic ways to come into the presence of God. It is not simply about habit and routine. It's about the person that we encounter. So Jesus, we hold out our hands. Simply as we prayed earlier, we say, I depend on you. I depend on you. We want to abide in you. We want to stop abiding in other things. We want to stop abiding in fear. Stop abiding in broken dreams. I want to stop dwelling on what people think of me. I want to dwell in what you think of me. Jesus, change our hearts. Holy Spirit, lead us into abiding right here together. Let no person leave unchanged. That's what you promise. We've come to meet with you in Jesus' name.